Welcome to Persisters, an all-female live show and podcast. Each episode showcases one artist. You'll hear their performance from our live show, followed by an interview with us, Beth Rowe and Alex Kern. Please listen and please subscribe. I'm going to read an essay called Maid of Honor Mad Lips. I have known Maid of Honor speeches. I have known them in Dallas and in Delaware and in the islands of Sicily. I have known them in microphones that squeak and in ballrooms with fog machines and purple spotlights carving out the initials of the newly betrothed. I have known words read from a crinkled paper, uttered from a glossy lip, encircled by a halo of a regrettable updo, which was, it's too much trouble to ask her to redo it, right, during the time we had to get ready, or should I re-ask her to redo it? I have known them against backdrops of sea, gazebo, and vineyard, from women in chiffon, viscose, and silk taffeta, and in every conceivable definition of slate. What do you know of these speeches? Do you know the smooth manicures clutching the mic? The women dressed head to toe in slate, frantically running through the lobby of the courtyard by Marriott, looking for the business center printer an hour before the ceremony? I have known speeches nervous, rocky, loud, and drunk. I have known them tearful, and in spite of all of these knowings, I have not known them at all. I started attending weddings in my 20s, and I've continued at a healthy, statistically American clip. I don't understand why people complain about being invited to weddings. I love being put in a room, slightly buzzed, to celebrate, if only for a few hours, just the positives. I love the break from monotony and visiting a new place. I love a free meal and an excuse to move my body to the collected works of Motown. I love seeing where people came from, their sweet grandfathers and their inappropriate aunts. Isn't so much about a person put into perspective when you observe the enthusiasm a mother has for straightening a veil, or listen to a father laud a high school GPA in a speech about two 33-year-olds about to wed? <laughs> These things, the table of Slovakian pastries, the fact that the brother takes the stage for a banjo solo but is not a part of the bridal party, reveal so much about a friend. Only two things can pull me out of the joyous alchemy of bottomless rosé, hits from the black eyed peas, and romance. The first is the maid of honor speech. These speeches confuse me for many reasons. To hear, the primary being that everyone depicts a narrow scope of female friendship. To hear maids tell it, women can apparently only meet in three places, college, second period of Mrs. Aiello's biology class, or in and around their mother's womb. No one's ever next to someone in a cubicle or at a Kid Rock concert or waiting in line at the DMV. Fair enough, maid of honor caliber friends are often acquired early in life when the range of human experience is limited. But that doesn't account for the uniform portrait these speeches paint of what it means to be a girl and have a friend. These speeches come packed with identical anecdotes. The stealing of the sister's favorite scrunchie. The wine nights in college. Watching, as if unaware of other TV shows, The Bachelor. They so frequently dissolve into indecipherable crying words. After a while, they started sounding like Mad Libs to me. Frameworks of stories about becoming friends with sort of a choose-your-own-adventure vibe of proper nouns and adjectives. Sort of like, hello everyone, for those of you who don't know me, this phrase is rampant. It is a maid of honors once upon a time. I'm, name, usually Lauren. 
<laughs> and I've known, name of bride, often Emily, for number of years. So many you won't believe how impersonal the rest of this speech is about to sound. <laughs> I first met, name of bride, likely Emily, on our first day of second grade, or life if you are Emily's sister, in which case it's time to break into the tears. This speech had a good run. <laughs> Everyone in class was jealous of her adjective and emblem of childhood nostalgia, usually a cartoon backpack. So I immediately knew we'd be great friends. Doesn't totally make sense, but friendships have been forged over less. <laughs> Throughout the years, we've had so many adventures. Traveling to noun, usually away games or Puerto Vallarta. <laughs> Watching every single lifetime original marathon of noun, movie title restricted to wedding crashers or legally blonde. While wearing noun, hilarious garment, snuggy. And I won't even go into the fact that we have shared so many nouns. Things that are normal and perfectly fine to go into, like late night pizzas, phone conversations, and glasses of wine. But Brian, groom's name, always Brian. <laughs> I remember when she met you, and we all knew it was gonna be the beginning of something special. Let's pause. When you Google best man speech, a flurry of SEO-ready lists pop up, suggesting one-liners, opening quips, warm-up jokes, Use your crazy story about the groom as a jumping off point, advises one website. You have got to see these epic speeches, say approximately 10,000 YouTube videos. <laughs> Doing the same for women yields a mix. Videos labeled perfect, best, sweet, sometimes funny, often touching. Why is this? Women I know in real life are clever, idiosyncratic, not saccharine, but maybe something about weddings, performative as they are, Make women perform. Men get to be fun. They're expected to put you at ease, to inject a sense of humor or levity to the whole production. Women, for whatever reason, condense their friendships into lunchboxes, wine, and the first time everyone saw Brian. <laughs> I can be a victim of it too. I get up there, I grip the mic, I look down at my chiffon through my ringlet of curls that I wish I just had a little more fortitude to intervene about when the lady brought up the curling iron. And I soften myself a bit. I try to make sure I offer a portrait of my friend that is ultimately sweet and gentle, or at the very least organized and not prone to ruffling feathers. There's a sense of having geared up for this day for women, and to men, it's like something that happened to them on the way to an epic YouTube video. <laughs> During these speeches, I inevitably start thinking about the only other thing I don't like about weddings. And it is the only other thing because I want for nothing in the presence of four horses and a DJ armed with a Cupid shovel. <laughs> and that's that I know I'm about to feel a loss. That my best friend, Katie Thompson, is about to be no more. I know that months from now, I'll receive an email from a familiar feeling stranger. Who is Katie Stone? I will say aloud, brow furrowed, while I click open this maybe spam to see that Katie Thompson, my best friend for decades, has not only a new email address, but a new identity entirely. Moving forward, please use my new email address, it will say, to a bunch of people, I imagine sitting very confused in blind carbon copy, were they dreading this moment like I was? What I read is, Katie Thompson, expert kayaker, donor of inaugural fake ID, guardian of secrets, answer of phone at any hours, is now deceased. 
In her place, please meet this, this dude's wife. I am happy for someone to be married. I am married. When someone sends me their wedding video, I watch it. And then I watch every other wedding that I can access via that production company's website, which means that when I look back at the sum of my experiences, they will include an entire afternoon completely lost to footage of couples I don't know getting married in Minnesota. It has made me happy to watch, to see their sweet grandfathers and inappropriate aunts, but I am never happy when someone dies. And that is what it feels like to me when someone changes their name. After declining in the 80s and 90s, the rate of women who keep their names is on the rise again, comprising by some estimates 20% of brides. That figure increases with education levels. In 2006, 50% of participants in an Indiana survey thought that taking a husband's name should be required by law. One study found that women can encounter stereotypes when they keep their name, include, including being viewed as less committed wives. In turn, another found that men whose wives kept their names were perceived as having less power in their relationship. To be clear though, my problem with this decision of people voluntarily changing their names is entirely my problem. The reason people do it, the reasons for people doing it are nice and understandable. The appeal of starting a family with a uniform nomenclature, a long time dislike of their last name or the father from whom they inherited it, a gesture of commitment. The changes nonetheless make me feel sullen. I land in the wilderness of Katie Thompson's voicemail where, hi, you've reached Katie Thompson, leave a message, has been annexed by some lady named Katie Stone. And I feel I've been socked in my stomach. I don't understand why the woman has to die. I think if two people walk into a marriage, they should both get to stay. And it's tricky for me to understand these people on Instagram wearing these shirts that say fiance and counting down until they abandon their namesake. Can't wait to be Mrs. So-and-so, they proudly declare. What's wrong with being you? What will change when you nominally become Mrs. So-and-so? People who race to change their social media monikers only hours after marriage and then hurry to update themselves on every piece of identity shortly thereafter, as if afraid of running into their maiden names, are the ones that perplex me most of all. Why the hurry to bury your former self? What troubles you exactly about not having a CVS card that reflects your new identity? Are you concerned that in between the time you are legally wed and when you return to your real life, someone is going to file taxes on your behalf? Do you fear it was unclear that in the near hourly photo updates leading up to your nuptials, we would be confused about whether you had actually gone through with it? We did not come all this way with you through the engagement images and that bachelorette party where people wore hats that said things to assume you blew it off at the end. Take your time. Update your handles when you are back from your honeymoon in Bali. And when you do, please be respectful of my privacy during this difficult time. <laughs> I take it personally. I feel a loss. I fret preemptively. I brace myself for heartbreak. It will be such a bummer when Claire Cooper becomes Claire Adams, I will say, of friends who have been dating for three weeks and have not expressed any particular interest in getting engaged. My thoughts race like this during a maid of honor speech while I sit behind my country club salmon in the misty aftermath of the fog machine until the maid of honor finally brings it to a close. I once read a quote, editor's note, often selected from a BuzzFeed article a few days prior. That said, love is a friendship that has caught fire. Brian, groom's name, always Brian. I wish you and Ashley a lifetime of friendship and love. 
Now please join me and raise a glass and give it up for the new Mr. and Mrs. Proper noun, groom's last name. And then the whole room, except for one lady in mourning, weeping in the corner to the Cupid shuffle, breaks into applause. Thank you. Hello. Welcome to Persisters. I'm Beth Rowe. I'm Alex Kern. And today we are talking with Molly Creedon. Welcome, Molly. Thank you for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. And not to be confused with Molly Creighton. No, not to be confused right. with Molly Creighton. What, would which would be my name if I had taken my husband's name, which right. is essentially the same as my last name, which right. is a little confusing. Did no, you guys have that when you first met? Was that like a Creighton Creighton? Was that like an inside joke between you and Colin? No, we kind of didn't realize it, but then, which just sounds dumb because we know our last names, but we, it just didn't really occur to us how similar they were until I was talking to some of his roommates when I was first meeting them. And they're like, what's your last name? And I was like, Creighton. And I think they thought I said Creighton like a psychopath. Oh. And they were like, what? <laughs> what? Like, but it's just, it's always, yeah, That's I don't funny. know. It hasn't really been a big thing. I dated a guy, dated, not true, made out with, and then like flirted a little bit with a guy named Alex Mernon. Shout out, Alex. You were, you were a lovely man. And people would call him Mern. And my name is Alex oh, Kern, yeah. which was That'd just very... Nice. Oh, so Alex Mern and Alex Kern yeah, mm-hmm. it was just too it was much. Very, it, was, it was just too much, you know? It was like, this can't work. What was it? Somebody... I've, I've, I watched a stand-up of somebody saying that they dated somebody with the same first name, but it was like androgynous like yours like is. Like Alex, yeah. Yeah, and it was like... How do you do why it? Why would you get in the way of love if, that, if you had the same... Do you know what I mean? They're a stand-up. <laughs> It was so a no. lie. It was a lie. <laughs> it wasn't real. No, it's just all, you know, uh, overanalyzing everything to get in the way of happiness. Right? Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. A lot of my friends did say to me, not a lot, but a few said to me, just change your name because truly no one will know. Like, it's That's, the same yeah. name. Like, it will just be easier. Because it yeah. is true. Like, if yeah. I'm calling, like, an airline, I'm being like, okay, the first name is Creedon. And the right. second name is Creighton. And they're right. like, ma'am, ma'am, you already told me. Like, it right. just gets a little yeah. sure. confusing. And my friends were like, for ease, let's just let's just make this one name. Will your kids it was be not so. a hyphenate? No, they'll have... I don't, be, I'm they'll not, be treated. Like, you know how in The Father of the Bride, he's like, I'm going to have a granddaughter named Sophie Zenkman. Like, <laughs> we're not going to do any of that. <laughs> that show business. I love that. Um, my mom uh, kept her name and my brother and I have our father's name and it was never confusing for our family. Like, my sure. parents are still married. Like, we just, we worked it out. Um, so, yeah, I think if I, if we have kids, I they will have a, you have name. liberal parents. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you, they never get um, uh, uh, cards in the mail that say Mr. and Mrs. What's your dad's name? Creedon. No, what's your dad's first name? Oh, sorry, Jack. They don't. They never get mail that says Mr. and Mrs. Jack Creedon or Mrs. Jack Creedon. No, they do. Okay. And there were people in um, my parents' life who just like wouldn't have it in you know nineteen. 19- 80 when they got married and she didn't take his name so they would give my mom things that like had her incorrect monogram on them oh or, really like they really were right. just trying to make creed happen for her and like in just very polite no they okay. were just like this is you know i don't i think people usually assume that you are taking your husband's name right um and then for those who found out that i don't know i think some just were like 
no, no, this is, you know, this is your name now. I love hearing these stories because that is so opposite of how I was, like, how I grew up. Like, it was like, I still address um, thank you notes, Mr. and Mrs. Yeah. Well, that was interesting when I got married because my mom, it was, there was a generational divide between how I felt we should address invitations and how my mom did, I would Mm. say. Like, my mom kept her own name, is a professor, like, is very liberal, but was like, when you address a wedding invitation, it's Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so. And And I was like, really? But also, if it's the formal way of addressing an invitation, which I just learned, Mm -hmm. you only have an and if they're married. Oh, I didn't know that. And otherwise, it's a comma. Oh, I didn't know that. Something, really? But it was one of those, it was like, but what if they are share the different last names, but they're mar- or why domestic partners. So, yeah. It was like, it made domestic partners strange. Like it, what didn't, yeah. it wasn't, it's not, I don't remember what the actual rules Well, I know are. with ampersand, when you're a writing duo, yeah. you use an ampersand, right? Oh, you do? Yeah. I didn't know that. And then, and is you're actually separate entities, but you're, I don't know, maybe I, there's something in there, guys. Google it. Okay. Yeah. So we're basically yeah. saying we don't know exactly what the rules are. So <laughs> yeah. somebody could go. But it's it's check. different. I mean, I got to a certain point of doing things for my wedding where I had addressed certain women as Mrs. You know, Bruce, Miss Mrs. Robert, and I remember having to do some other name card for someone. I was like, I I don't know this woman's first name because I'm so far down the line calling right. her Mrs. Whomever. Right. And right. It's, her it's property. Just, I guess, yeah. And again, like, I think I don't, my piece I wrote because I was feeling very conflicted about my friends changing their names. It is not to say that people shouldn't change their names if that makes sense for them. Like, it's not, it's, it, it, there are a variety of reasons people change their names and I think that they make sense for certain people, but I was grappling with my own feelings about it. Yeah, like, if I end up with a Rockefeller, I'm changing my name. Yeah, I would Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or some people have really bad last name. Like they, they yes. don't like the way their last name sounds. So right. they just can't wait to, you know, shake them or right. they don't, they're not wild about their father from whom they inherited it. You know, like there, right. there are reasons that people. I just get rid of them. feel like I always thought I would change my name mm-hmm. and then, but keep my same name. Obviously, like professionally, you can't like change a. Like a, you can't change a stage name. I mean, no, you can, you but I think it's weird when people like add Very a hyphen and then do take it off. Actors do that. Yeah. Do they really? Do you remember when um, Courtney Jennifer um, Anderson? Uh, both of them. Courtney Cox got no. Courtney d- Cox Arquette. Okay. She changed to Courtney Cox Arquette. So went right after she got married and she changed her name as a joke. Friends made it was like Courtney and Courtney Cox hyphen Arquette, and then they put a hyphen Arquette after all the cast. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, Friends is the best. Oh, that is. Fun. Oh, yeah, no, it is. Friends is what? I mean, I, I said Friends is the best. I oh, mean, I thought I you know. said Friends is the worst, and I was like, oh, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, tell me <laughs> more. Tell me more about why you hate wow. Friends. <laughs> right. Basic enough that <laughs> I don't have like a cool t- a hot take about Friends. <laughs> um, I mean, I know a lot of actors change. All of their like everything about their names. Yeah, like I've John had someone Legend. call me out on stage because they're like, "Is it Alex or Alexandra?" Because it's very confusing. Mm, yeah, that's like, hard for you. You are Alexandra. Like, wow, I am. I am. Yeah. Paper. So it's like I need to make a decision. Oh, you kind of do both right now. Well, no, but like when I used to act, I was Alexandra, and as I ventured more into the comedy world, I've only been Alex. But my Facebook is Alexandra. So what do I do? 
It's Alex. Yeah. Let's be honest. Where are you from? Where are you from, girl? I am from Colorado. Where in Colorado? I am from Colorado Springs, which <gasps> is uh, really a white. place that I guess Beth knows because she just lit up. Yes. Um, I, I, I grew up in New Jersey until I was 10, but I sort of like lived for most of my life in Colorado, in Colorado Springs, which is an hour south of Denver. Uh, it is a beautiful and very odd place. It's the, it's the strangest place in the world. It is the home of um, hundreds and hundreds of evangelical organizations. But also like a secret mountain community of like mm-hmm. a, the government is in like yes, the Norad mountains there. there. Yes, There's also an the, army base. Yeah, there are four army. There are four armed force bases. Um, there's a NORAD is a um, I don't even know, like Sorry. defense center in the mountain that. Uh, is like where the Cold War was run out of, um, it's and crazy. yeah, it's a weird, it's a very, it's a very military town. It's a very evangelical town. It's a beautiful town, and the it's Broadmoor. also the Broadmoor is beautiful, and oh. it, the hotel, five star hotel, and it's mm-hmm. also. Uh, my mom is a college professor. My father was the headmaster of my boarding school there, so I was in these little pockets of it where I wasn't really exposed. Exposed. To it. Your mom much taught at Colorado College. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. She still does. I yep. love that. That campus is so pretty. It's lovely. It's a lovely place. That's yeah. in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. Colorado yeah. College. Okay. Yeah, it's Ooh, um, my brother was stationed there, and I oh, lived in Littleton. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Which at Fort Carson? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I but I I grew, I lived in Littleton for like six years when oh. I was a kid. Oh, yeah. cool. Did he like Port Carson? I sure. Yeah. Then then you just become like a person who leaves on the weekends to go skiing, and yep. life's not that bad. Yeah. He also met his wife there, so oh, everything nice. is yeah. Yeah. Did you ski a lot? Uh, not as much as other people, but I did ski. It is just like a part of what you do growing up. Like you wake up really early on the weekends and you drive to the mountains. As a result, I don't love skiing now. Like I go once a year. Um, Because just like you did, it did it too much. My family actually right now is all skiing together in Colorado and I'm not there, but um, because I, um, yeah, it's just, it, I don't like being cold. Like I don't like paying to be cold. Um, so this time of year it is colder to ski in Colorado and the spring it's warmer. Where did you go to school? To college, yeah. I went to Georgetown in D.C. That's I know somebody else that went there. Alex. I, I don't know. I met Molly early in my days at Georgetown was when I was an athlete, which is like hysterical to even think about. And I was on the ninth floor. And on the field hockey and team where she wore bows in her hair. Oh, like my God. Like the rest of the girls on I the field did. hockey team. I did. I told her. But you're also still very athletic, so it's not yeah, such a Yeah, but I don't wear bows in my hair. But we, yeah, we knew each other freshman year. I don't think we had any other classes together, but we just overlapped socially a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, In the quad? Uh, no, just at rooftop parties. Co-eds. <laughs> I actually had like these Facebook, you know, when Facebook is like, remember 10 years yeah. ago? And it was a... It was a sort of like I'd rather not because yeah. ten years ago I was like standing next to a keg in like a Forever Twenty One T-shirt. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But actually, I looked really good, and I was like, "I'm sorry, why I should not have been wearing that bra with that dress." It was like you could just see my breasts, kind yeah. of. But I looked; I was definitely so drunk and so happy, and I was like, "I can't party like that anymore." I just like my body's like mm-hmm. no. Me but you were there with John Lazar, mm-hmm. uh, and I was like. <laughs> 
It was John Lazar's a-, a doctor now, by the way. Yeah, I know. It's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. He's not writing essays about last names. No. He's out there saving lives. So shout out to John Shout Lazar, out to John Lazar. The most successful person on this oh podcast. Oh, my God. We all knew that, JK, though. JK, JK. We all knew that, that he was going to do that. He's a goofy Good guy. Anyways, so, yes, Molly and I know each other from, from college. I love that. Mm-hmm. When did you move to L.A.? I moved to L.A., uh, In 2013, uh, after working in New York for six years, I went from Georgetown to, um, I did a program at, I did a certificate program. I thought I wanted to be in book publishing. So I did a certificate program at Columbia University that was a summer program called the Columbia Publishing Course, which I think still exists, but I have no idea like how, um, and it was magazine and book publishing. Thought I wanted to be in book publishing, went there, got a job through that actually in magazine publishing, um, worked at Cosmo um, for a year. I know. So funny. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I used to email. One of the things I did when I was at Cosmo, this is my first job. (laughs) um, And I had to email. I was in charge of the Cosmo confessions page where people are like, (laughs) you know, and then I tripped in front of my crush and it was the worst ever. (laughs) It's like Allie, comma, 22. (laughs) But they they were very rigorous about fact checking. So they were like, these have to be real. So you have to get, you know, 20 original confessions every month. And so I was constantly emailing like people I knew. I don't know if I got an email. No, I'm sure you did. I, there's no, there was like no (laughs) stone unturned. Like I just, everyone, cause, and I was asking, asking people to give me confessions or I was asking my guy friends. There were, we, there was a column called like hot guy of the month quote, or something, and I would ask my guy friends to provide quotes for right. that. So, like, a roster of guys we went to college with appeared in Cosmo in, like, the late aughts. That is so funny. Um, well, I remember Mike Stevens. Stevens, right. Pat O'Neill, like, all, all sorts of people. And then... That's so funny. Yeah. Why did I... St- oh, you were asking when I moved to LA. So, um... So, it's different... Sorry, really quick. The magazine publishing, that's different than the journalism program there, right? Or is it, it the same? I mean, it is. It, it was the book and magazine. It, it's called the Columbia Publishing Course. It's like, do you want to be involved in publishing? It was a crash course in book editing and magazine editing and writing. Um, mm-hmm. You met a lot of people, some of whom mm-hmm. I still actually know and still work in the industry. Many don't. I, I, I don't know how it has evolved. I mean, it is. this was like a while ago. Um, right. But it, it is thanks to that that I got a job. Uh, that's how I met an editor at Cosmo and ended up getting a job right after. Um, that's so cool. Yeah, it was it was it was uh, it was a very different time, but it was interesting. It was yeah. it was cool. Like people, you know, would come in from like Esquire or O Magazine or mm-hmm. you know whatever. Or they, they Bob Gottlieb, who used to edit the New Yorker, who's this big book publish book editor, would come in and talk about working with all these famous writers, and it was great to have access to them. Um, and that was uh, Condé Nast. Columbia no. University. No, no, no. Oh, sorry. I was talking about Cosmo, though. Was Cosmo's a cursed. Oh, um, right. Okay. And, yeah, and then I found out about a job at Vogue right. a year after I worked at Cosmo, which, I mean, people always think Cosmo was like a pillow fight. Like, they're like, ha-ha, Cosmo. It was really intense. Like, it was a very sure. well-oiled machine. It was not. It, like, taught me how to have a job. How to honestly like how to report things. I, it, mm. That sounds like a funny thing to say about Cosmo, but it really did. It taught me how to like get on the phone with people who I didn't know and ask them questions and like make it into a cohesive story. Uh, then I found out about the job at Vogue, assisting the managing editor. Who managing editors do different things, but 
she kind of oversaw. She was like number two at the magazine under Anna. Wow. Um, she and you did that in New York. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So, um, and she was like managing writers and she, she would oversee everything that went into the magazine. She would make sure like the mix made sense. Like, do we have, you know, too many political pieces, too many fat, mm-hmm. you know, what is kind of the balance? Are we touching on the things we want to be touching on? Um, and then, yeah, so I worked for her for a couple years. She had, I mean, it was like real OG Conde Nast stuff. I was one of two assistants. I called cars. I got breakfast and dinner. And Devil wears prodding. I did a lot. I was like spraying static guard on skirts on my hands how, and knees. How in, yeah. I, I'll never forget Molly because this was like, this was pre-Instagram, right? This was before mm-hmm. everyone knew about the Met Ball. Mm-hmm. It was just like people who read Vogue and were like into that type right. of thing. So I was like, oh my God, the Met Ball. And I remember talking to you about how, well, you can tell us, how they try, the people who work there all go to the Met Ball and they all, they get to choose from the closet of dresses. And then you eat, you ate like, you made sure you had food in your purse, which was like two almonds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a, there was a dress code every year. Um, and an email would go out saying, this is the dress code. And then they would pull a lot of dresses for people to wear. And then you would go and you'd pick one or kind of get a signed one. And then you would, and the, yeah, my, most people's job at the Met Gala, like low level people is sort of just to, to stand and like, be greet. part of the kind of greet. One year I was a greeter, actually. Mm-hmm. Emily Weiss and I were greeters. Glossier, um, Emily as, Weiss? Yeah, as wow. people pulled up. That's like, so it was like, Petity, can I help you out of your car? And he was like, no. You know, like he doesn't need my help out of his car. But He is a king. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's gold. But, but yeah, like, so you dress up really beautifully. We got our hair and makeup done. Um, and we would go, and you would. You would stand from like 4 p.m. until very late you were like had a station you had two stations you'd stand at one place and then you'd stand at another place and so yeah people would it, it was like really a marathon so you'd eat a lot before or I would I would eat a lot before and then I would put little almonds in my purse and try to like sneak them because what was interesting is you're you're standing there and there's there's like the procession of people invited to the Met Ball walking by you so it would be like Gwyneth Paltrow and Michael Kors or Katy Perry, who was wearing, who was then married to Russell Brand oh and wearing God. a light up so dress strange. and kind of like, a kind of tipsily yelling things loudly. Or you would see, you would also see how human these people were. Like a lot of yeah. them were at a party where they didn't know anyone, which is really? very interesting. Yeah, because That's they're the like. The strangest thing about like these, like about like entertainment parties when, with people, parties with celebrities, because it's like, they don't know right. that person. Just because that person's a celebrity doesn't right. mean that they know X, Y, Z. Right, exactly. So and strange. especially if they're new. Like I was actually just interviewing uh, a young star on the, from the cast of Riverdale, <gasps> which, which I one? didn't know. Casey Cott, who was lovely. She plays, plays Kevin. Ben. He plays Kevin. I'm behind. Oh, yeah. I, like, he's forget. friends with um, my fiance. They, they, he's from Cleveland. Oh, really? Casey yes, Cott. Yeah. he loves LeBron. Yeah. There you he go. was lovely. Yeah. But he's been famous... For like eight months. I mean, but, yeah. and so all of a sudden it's like he was, you know, he, not eight months. Riverdale's been on for what, three seasons, two years maybe. But, you know, he was, I was with him. He was getting ready to go to the GQ Men of the Year Awards. And he, I don't know, two years ago he was like in his dorm room at Carnegie Mellon. So that's a right. really big shift yeah. in terms of going into these rooms where 
all of a sudden you've kind of been anointed. Sure. But you're not like you're not, you know, Bradley Cooper. You don't know everyone from sure. from whatever. So um yeah, so yeah. So I used to go to the Met Gala. Uh it was fun. It was cra- it was crazy because to? I went to five. I mean wow. it was crazy because it it has changed in terms of how they cover it because the media has changed. Totally. But they used to shut the door. And that was it. Like, there wasn't media allowed in. Vogue was the only one who reported on it. So people acted like there weren't camera. You know, people kind of, like, acted. It was a private party. Yeah, they took, like, they, like, you know, took their hair out. And they, they, it was fun. Like, it it was really fun. Yeah, that's insight into how it's all changed. Yeah, it's, it has really changed. And, I mean, Media has to do what it has to do to stay alive. Like, it's so difficult to figure out models that are lucrative and that keep everything going and keep everyone being paid and, and, and stuff like that. So I understand why they have to evolve. But it was, like, just an old school, like, private party full of every famous person Fancy-ass in party. the Met. Yeah, yeah. That's and how was working with, what was Anna Wintour like? Um, my first couple years at Vogue, I never, I very rarely interfaced with her beyond, like, dropping things off at her office and... Yeah, that was pretty much the extent of it. Um, then I got promoted a, f- a few times, and my uh, final role there, I was the culture editor of Vogue.com. So once a week, we had a web meeting with her, and I would pitch like my lineup for the week. Um, and that was excellent. Um, <laughs> no, it really was. It was excellent training for like a million other things I have subsequently done. I had to. I just learned how to pitch something mm-hmm. and how to really be like, if you want to convince someone that you're going to do this, you have to have an airtight argument. And wow, it, I think she was a good, she, she, I rem, I remember I would just, I would go through my list of stories I wanted to do. And I would try to think through every question she might ask me about it, like every problem she might have with it and try to answer. And I did that weekly it's funny how much I think about this when I'm thinking about pitching other things. It's almost like like you kind of like took a lawyer's approach to this. Well, you really she's a, you know, she's a really um she knows what she wants and she just points out when she doesn't she, you know, something that she doesn't think makes sense or that isn't right. isn't strong enough. There's a reason um, she's as powerful as she is. Yeah, so I think I learned a lot. It was just great training for um, having that kind of audience who is like re- is really tough and expects the best because that's the other thing. Like working at Vogue was incredible because everyone around me was excellent. Like I truly felt mm-hmm. like every single person was so good at what they did and mm-hmm. really loved it and knew it through and through and was just like among the top people doing whatever it was that they did. I worked in the features department with writers and editors who I thought were incredible. Like they'd worked at the New Yorker, they'd worked at Vanity Fair. Like they were just so talented. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's excellent. And it just, it really, I, it's, I think all, I think all, a lot about things I learned having to pitch her every week. I, I'm sure she has like n- never ever thought of me once since I, <laughs> <laughs> since I left the conference room. Doubtful, mom. But um, yeah, it was, it was really good experience. It was really good experience. Did you, very superficial question, did you have to wear heels every day? Is that correct? No, you don't have to. Um, No, no. I think that I, one thing that I did adapt when I worked in that building was I did think a lot about my appearance and my presentation, and I thought a lot about 
what would be the most effective way to pitch an idea or communicate something or to walk into a room and want to impress upon people that I was like to be taken seriously. And often I'm tall and five, nine that often that involved heels. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds shallow, but it did, it did make me think a lot about appearance. Um, mm-hmm. No, I, I think that it, and and it power and way. polish, like, yeah. Yeah. you know, it just sort of like it ultimately I could have been wearing the highest heels in the world. And if I had a, a idea that wasn't well thought through people at Vogue would have been like, that is not a good idea. But, right. but it, it does, it did help. I found, and I've subsequently found outside of Vogue, like it helps to, for me, if I feel pulled together, I feel like I do a better job. Sure. And I also leaned into my height. I had never really liked being tall. I felt like I was always slouching. I felt like I always was like, oh, I want to be like this cute, like nymph of a girl. Or it would be like, I'll be so like cute. An and then I got to Vogue and I'll, there are a lot of tall women there and they all wore heels. So they all were like six foot two. And I was like, oh, cool. And I just started, I think I started, people had always throughout my life been like, oh, you're so lucky you're tall. And I really didn't feel that way. And then I got there and I kind of realized like they struck a presence, like they walked mm-hmm. into the room and they struck a presence and you kind sure. of, you listened to them. And, um, you know, for better or worse, I I have found that to be like an effective tool is like showing up in a room. But I and feel like men owning my height have their own version yeah. of that. And it's like, you're in a nice suit. Yep. You're, you know, you, you, that's, well, that's all they have to do. That's so fucking <laughs> um, We're in LA. They wear t-shirts and cool sneakers and a hat. Right. Like they do. No, but like a lot of, I mean, I mean, I think, uh, like on the business side, people, you sure. know, for sure have their, I mean, I remember my friend Arvon was an assistant for yeah. years at WME, and I think they probably all wear suits. I don't know, but they he was do, yeah. always yeah. dressed yeah. to the nines. And yeah. yeah, there's something to be said about that, certainly. And I'm like, oh, God damn it, mom, you're right. It's like, yeah, I just, I just think about my mom. I don't <laughs> think I don't think you can I don't think you can win something with an outfit. Like I think no, that, of course, but I not. think that you can. I don't know if you can lose something either, but I definitely think it it makes people maybe pay attention to you. Not even an outfit, but like whatever is going to inspire confidence in you. Mm-hmm. And like, for me, it is like feeling pulled together and often wearing heels. Like I wore heels when I read my essay. I know. I was, I was just like, about to say that. Cause I, I, I was like, damn girl, well, you're rocking it. I love it. I just, yeah. I just thought like, this will make me, f- I don't know. This will give me like, it'll make me feel like I have some heft. It'll make me feel like I like can hold people's attention even if they don't listen to any of the words. It's like wearing my Dolly shirt. I wore my Dolly shirt last (laughs) night. I'm serious. And like, and that's the thing too. It's like when you start doing a lot of stand up, everyone is watching you. You've got very bright lights on you and you're like, what do I look like? What do I feel confident and like um, comfortable in but also like look good in you know yeah. and it's comfortable to like move around and feel like myself so like I don't particularly like wearing heels I like wearing sneakers but like I think about that stuff you know what I've started thinking about similarly is um, I used to get my lashes done all the time mm-hmm. And I've yeah. stopped doing that. I've been putting like strips on, which don't look as good at all. But I, and like, um, it's even when you're like, you don't think about makeup when you think about stand up. But if I see a photo of me doing stand up, I'm like, well, you can't, you can't see my feature or you can't mm-hmm. see my face. I've heard and many women why, like, say that in I, terms of a false lashes because they feel like they don't have to do. At least if they have that, they feel like they don't have to do a lot else sometimes. Yeah, and I also, I just think that it's... So you're saying um, you miss the lashes. You're going to go back. I do. Well, I mean, 
they're so expensive, but yeah. it's, um, but also just like a, a bold lip. I mm-hmm. think sometimes it's not, again, going back to like, it's, it's about what I have to say. Yeah. It's like, it's the same thing as you going into right. a pitch meeting. It's like, it's about, it's about my work and my writing and all that. But at the same time, I'm going to feel so much more comfortable if I feel good about, and also it's going back to like why actors wear makeup on stage. You then can see my my face, yeah. like your features. Yeah, you, you know, what I mean? it's like oh, them. you see my mouth. You yeah. can see my eyes. You can see. Yeah. Well, it's also I remember I don't know an article way back when. Now it's now Amy Schumer has a whole line of clothing. She does, but yeah, she does. It's called Le Cloud. Hmm. I have no uh-huh. idea what it looks like, but apparently the price point is is uh, very affordable. Um, but I remember Shout talking about white and tulle. How the hard cloud. it is to find something to wear that you like feel comfortable and confident in with your body. And mm-hmm. then I think she was working with like um, uh, a stylist of some kind who I think was making her dresses. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that makes total sense. Like because. I don't know. It's like I, if you're performing several times a week, you can't wear the same. This is sounds like the dumbest conversation, but I think about it a lot because I'm like, what am I going to wear on stage tonight? That's like, oh, I have personality. Oh, I have style, yeah. but it's not too much. Yeah. And I'm not, and I want to be not feel like my belly because I always have a thing about my belly is like sticking out, and like it still does, but like at least it doesn't stick out as much. You know, like well, all these things. And this is why I think this is what not to be too. I don't know, but Spanx. this is, this no, is what I, <laughs> I thought was really interesting about Vogue, to be very honest, is that it taught me to look at fashion in a cerebral way. Like yes. it taught me, to, it taught me that like two things can be true at once. You can care about clothes and you can think a lot about them. And you can also be a bright person who is interested in like the world and politics and, and the economy. And, and, and I, I went into Vogue not knowing anything about fashion really. And then I came, I, I, while there really developed an appreciation for like designers and fashion writers, because someone like Phoebe Philo at Celine Mm -hmm. thought, and again, these are crazy price points. They are not for everyone, but they trickle down. Like they affect what happens in mass market fashion. And she said like Mm -hmm. women, I know, the, you know, she, it was a. Mo- she had this idea for how women in the modern women should dress, and it included sneakers. But it mm-hmm. included sneakers that like meant that you could go to like a board meeting in them, mm-hmm. and maybe then you had to go pick up your kid. But like she really, I, that's what I think is interesting, and like it really it it sort of tuned me into the fact that really really bright people are thinking in intelligent ways about how women should dress for like their realities. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone's thinking about stand up comedians. I, Maybe well, I have Toriano, two, I two like. thoughts about that. The first one is I was just think, thinking like you came into Vogue not knowing anything or not knowing a lot about fashion so you like kind of came in Anne Hathaway left Emily Blunt and also Mary Poppins comes out today I just thought I had to point that that out but then also I just read recently like I think yesterday Victoria Beckham's company lost Mm -hmm. like millions and millions of dollars last year really and I'm kind of surprised because they have like flagship stores yeah Um, she's like she's not touring with the Spice Girls because in her company just celebrated 10 years and I've seen it like from as far as like events and stuff like or uh, uh, like from like from stuff that I've done like like her clothes are out there people are wearing them I have a thought and this is somebody who's like not in fashion I feel like 
she, I think her clothes are too expensive for yeah. where her audience is. That, mm. surpri- that surprises me. I mean, they're really expensive. The fact expensive, that she does like but, high end. But like, she's yeah. got all the celebrity clientele. Like why, why can't? But if, but if you have flagship stores. But if you stores, have flagship stores, oh, you need. Oh, 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 like, oh. And, you're, and she's, yeah. she's, she's not an Olsen twin. She doesn't have like a ready to wear you know? line? No, Because that's where they make so. all their money, right? Right, or accessories. Right. Like you can buy Mark like. Mark Jacobs, co- Michael Kors. Coach sunglasses. Right. Or like a like a pouch right. or something. Maybe, right. I mean, I could like, no, like I, look on my computer and be like, oh no, she does have that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think she And has her that. stuff is like, it also looks, it looks like business casual. Like yeah. it's like high end business casual. I love her stuff. If she had like, if she had like a, um, God, I, I want to say like, well, even like a Zara line, like a Zara Victoria yeah. or like, or well, like a shop line I actually something. interviewed her at, um, she released a line with Tell Reebok. Me Everything. With um, Reebok? Reebok. Mm-hmm. Which is different than obviously, but it was, a, it was through Reebok, but she has a line with them. Huh. And I went to an event where it was her and she was celebrating, she did a collaboration with Shaq who's a big Reebok um, ambassador. So I actually have a t-shirt from her that has Shaq on it. Um, But yes, I'm surprised, especially given the fact that she does, she does a lot of trousers. She does a lot of sneakers. She does uh, t-shirts. I'm yeah. That I would wonder if well, she has like, like an affordable it, price. The point. Reebok yeah. makes sense to me because her mm. husband is David Beckham, so she knows all. Well, of he's the Adidas athletes. though. He came to the Reebok oh. party wearing an Adidas shirt because he was like, "Don't get it twisted." Oh really? Oh, but still, I think he has. I think I'm sure Probably he has an deal. obligation to Adidas sure. to be like, "I'm not going to just put on a Reebok shirt sure, for sure. like ten minutes. Like I have to." Sure. For ten minutes, they were cute though. It was all the backups. They were really. It was really nice. It was. They were actually I like have very, very sweet. Mad respect for that family. Yeah. I really do. I mean, they work hard. They seem obviously. Like they seem like they really enjoy each other's company. Like that was my. I've seen. Brief I've seen the. I've seen David Beckham a couple of times. But I've seen Soul him Cycle. with like. I saw him. At Soul I've Cycle. seen him like. With all of his kids, like go to Soul yeah. Cycle. Like he takes them to like Wait, go work. That's out. what I've yeah. heard too. Yeah. yeah, at the yeah the one in West Hollywood. Yeah, um, yeah, that's what I've heard too. I saw him in Hollywood at Soul Cycle like on a Saturday, and I walked in. This was like a year or two ago. I walked in. And I was like, that guy is covered in tats, and he's he's kind of hot, kind of short. And then I was like, that was David Beckham. <laughs> yeah, he is not tall. He said hello to me one time when I worked at Soho House, and oh, he I know. He said, he said, thanks so much. And I just had just walked in and I was like, uh, t- <laughs> and he said, you it are like, welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Cause he has such a high voice. A high voice. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So that's my, that's how, that's my, yeah. My two cents on fashion. Also one more thing about fashion. Did you feel like when you left Vogue, you, you had like a better sense or I don't know, a stronger sense of your own, um, like what you were drawn to in terms of what you wear, either on a daily basis or like, like you're like, I know what to wear for my body or I know what I like or. Yeah, I think so. I think that I was around so many people who were sort of setting. Like the, the thing that it, I found and I worked on the feature side, so not alongside the fashion editors at all, but you're with them every day and um they all had uniforms. And so through that, you kind of observe, even if these people who are excellent at spotting trends, they're excellent at predicting the way things are going to go. They're excellent at pulling things out and being like, this is it. Anna's really good at finding new talent. She's really good at finding young designers and investing in them and saying, this is, you know, this person has a lot of promise. 
but they all have uniforms. So even though they see everything new, they all like kind of had figured out what worked for them. And I think that, in, yes, that that's interesting. Influenced me a lot. Like I was like, oh, I don't have to shift every time someone decides like, like we're doing that. mermaid skirts now. So like, right. I got a mermaid skirt. Like you can, you know, you, if something really works for you, but that's also getting older too. Yeah. Like you, you just sort of, I think w- figure out what you like and what makes you feel good. And it's like, you have like that, that one stuff. white shirt, that and one it, blouse that right. you're like, okay, this can be my look. And it changed blouse. when I came to LA though, too. Like I, I haven't, I burned my tights essentially. Like I haven't, <laughs> I never wore I have a really drawer skirts and heels. Yeah. Like nice. I, you know, I have more jeans than I know what to do with. Like it, it is a different vibe. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I go back to New York and I feel underdressed. Yeah. Did you find last question about fashion industry? I know um, that it was a supportive environment of women because I'm assuming it was predominantly women, and or was it competitive? Um, I think that it was like many workplaces, many intense workplaces, it was a mix. I still, um, my, I, after I worked for the managing editor, I worked for the culture editor of Vogue and the health editor. And I am still in touch with them. And the culture editor, I actually just worked on a a help. She's a book editor now. And I worked on a book with her. Um, so, she like people have remained mentors and people oh, who and so it also great. peer. So she wasn't my peer, but people who are my peers definitely. I felt it actually I did feel like mm. it was supportive. I, I guess it's I like great. fell in with a good lot. Um, but it is I mean, it is it is a in a place where you are constantly trying to figure out where you're trying to be first on everything. You're trying to tell people what the next thing is. It is like it can be a pressure cooker. So that sometimes sure, like there are moments where people are not probably their best, most supportive selves. Yeah. What are you working on now? I am freelance writing for magazines and websites. Right. Right now I'm working on a piece for the New York Times, which I'm excited about. <gasps> That's so cool. Can you tell us more? I don't want to talk about it Oh yet, my God. I'll say that. Private, it'll be out you guys. In, it'll, I think it'll be out in early January. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm excited about. That's cool. awesome. Um, and then I, I just worked on a piece... Um, that's actually going to be in a, a book about downtown LA about a neon artist, which I didn't know anything about neon art, but it's a big thing in I'm LA. So, Do you know I about love, neon? Wait, no, but I love neon artists. What? So I didn't realize neon, <laughs> this woman's name is uh, Tiza Maldonado. She's a young female. They're called benders. Neon artists are called uh, benders because they actually physically bend the tubing. Um, she, hmm. it's a, like many fields, predominantly male. She's this young woman in it doing it. Although there are many, there are some women who have been doing it for a while in LA, but she's, people are excited about her. I didn't realize most neon art is made by hand. It's like a beer sign or anything. Like it's all, they're so expensive. Oh, have you looked into buying some neon art for your Yeah, it's so (laughs) expensive. I I just want some neon life, neon art in my life. They have some, uh, my dad actually like sold neon signs like back oh, in the day. Oh, interesting. What? So he has this like weird, and also because he worked in, um, did like a lot of like restaurant recruiting. So he like is obsessed with signage of restaurants. And I, since coming to LA, I have um, 
uh, th- like th- all of the neon signs have such a history. Yeah. And they're so expensive to yeah. keep on. Right. Because it's so, they have so electricity. much electricity. Yeah, that right. Makes sense. Exactly. And they Culver city. What's that? Um, there's like, Oh, like a, Oh yeah. There's like a massive neon sign for a car dealership. Right. Oh, no. And it like, Oh, I don't spins know. Or something, but it's like the amount of money that it caught, like they had, I don't, I don't know how they keep it up. Like, because like they can barely afford to keep it on because it's just so Yeah. And there are preservation efforts I've learned in LA because it's gone through sort of waves of being in and out. Like it, it they're all historical landmines. Right. Some (laughs) landmines, historical (laughs) landmines. Don't step on it. What? (laughs) They, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they had this like peak in like the new media advertising, I think in like the 1930s through the fifties. And then they kind of, then they were kind of seen as like emblems of like sort of a downturn in a neighborhood. Like they just were seen as chintzy. And so then in the seventies, they were like kind of, people kind of let them go or they got rid of them completely. And then, and then there was, there's been, I think through the nineties, this starting in the nineties, this effort to like, rehab them and there's a museum of neon in glendale which is cool um but la is very much a place where there has been a lot of of neon art like this this is seen as a place where or maybe not even neon art but like just neon in general so yeah i learned a lot about that this woman was really interesting learning about neon art was interesting that's going to be in this book about downtown la um i just worked on uh, ghostwriting, or I worked with this couple who are writing a cookbook and helped them write uh, their essays, and that's coming out. Chrissy Teigen. It and was. John have you Lundgren. ever heard of them? <laughs> no, it was for um, these lovely people, Stephen and Jessica Rose, who wrote um, a book called. They have a business called the Peach Truck. They sell Georgia peaches. Oh yeah, you um, told me about Georgia this. Peaches so in cool. Nashville, and they just made this beautiful cookbook. So I was helping them. A little bit with some of their essays. They're telling stories about their family and their backgrounds and building their business. And then I am working on a book proposal of my own, of which the essay that I read at so cool. the event is a part. So I'm very excited for that book. Are there I'm any dating excited. stories, Molly, from I, your 20s? You from know, your Vogue not, not to age you. <laughs> you mean now? <laughs> like now, the 20s that I'm living <laughs> and dating? Um, there aren't any I don't I mean I guess I have like I don't have fantastic dating stories I dated before apps I have one where I was I I randomly the other day was researching Freemasons for a story and oh I realized I went on a date with a guy who was a Freemason which I didn't totally know what that was but he kept saying it like as a selling point he's like what is a Freemason I don't totally know there are these secret societies um if anyone knows about Freemasons have you been to the Marciano Marciano Mm -hmm. gallery Mm -hmm. there's a whole room about it I was just there I missed it it's upstairs I guess I missed it it's totally weird yeah but they kept it in order to just pay homage to what the the space used to be oh interesting Yeah. yeah I I it's yeah, there are these secret societies, like they I'm not really quite sure. Either. I'm not totally sure why. White men. But then some have women I've subsequently oh, learned. Really? I don't know. So but I remember Dave was like, I'm a Freemason. And I, he just kept sort of saying it as if it was like the selling point. And I was like, Okay. And then like one night I remember he was texting me and he's like, I'm with all my Freemason brothers and we're you have to come out and meet us. We're in kilts and we're singing songs. And I was like, nothing could be less appealing wow. than that proposition. So um no, so I don't have fantastic dating stories. There are a lot That's of fine. stories about um a lot of them center on like how duplicitous it is to be a young person 
and working like unless you randomly land your dream job I feel like that you feel like fits you in every way and even if you do land your dream job like I feel like so much of working as a young person is showing up and like pretending you a know what's going on or b like are really just like really into into it. it totally and you're sort of trying on these different like faces and like mm-hmm. and of like a, this employee um so it's they're a lot centered around that did you find that like early in your career or just like kind of throughout and it'll just pop up i think there i've just been in a few different work situations where i think everyone is in a work situation where like one thing is happening and you're sort of saying one thing out loud and then you have this entire inner monologue about mm-hmm. like what like it's what also is like going imposter syndrome, whether yes right? it's like whether it's your insecurity about it or whether you're like, I cannot believe this. Like, why right. are we at a baby shower for like, mm-hmm. sh- you know, Shonda over in HR? I don't know her. Yeah. Why did I bring mm-hmm. her a baby gift? Like that all was that a good kind of fake stuff. name, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Shonda was great. Yeah. Shonda rhymes. Why, <laughs> why am I at her baby shower? Um, so yeah, it's, but they're, they're all, they're all like based in, in stories um, that I hope are funny. Have you done storytelling before? Like, because I know it's as we were talking. No, but that you were so great as you were talking about it um, after the show. You were like there was a very different version that I wrote, and I kind of had to, you know, edit some things for the version that I read because yeah. they're two very different things. Oh yeah, because you said it was like you, the, because yeah. this one was to be performed and the other is to be read. Right. People I may not know that. I yeah. I think that I. I think people do read their essays. I think maybe the way that I write as I was. There was just vocabulary that wasn't super colloquial. I felt like it, things would be better if I kind of made them a little more conversational. It's a different skill set. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. it's a really different skill set, like, weaving together, like, a, a sentence that kind of makes you, like, smile or beam or go, ah, what a great sentence, versus standing in out. front of people and saying, have you ever experienced this? Here's what I think about it. Do you know it? And it's just, I, which was an a great exercise for me. So connecting with the people instead of just... I think right. so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of when you read something that you enjoy, it's so internal. Like, you're not necessarily always trying to get someone to audibly laugh. Right. Sure. You're trying to make somebody think and yeah. feel and... Theme was boundaries for this mm-hmm. show and curious because you are an opinionated liberal woman with a very strong voice in your writing. Mm-hmm. You're a great writer. How has it been a woman kind of pursuing this craft, which requires you to be very entrepreneurial. And also, I guess just in the past year, have you felt a shift in the way you've interacted in your job or and or with men in your industry and beyond? Something that is interesting about my experience is I have almost always worked for women. So something when around the time, uh, sort of like the windfall of what happened after the Me Too shakeup of the entertainment industry in the fall and then like everything that kind of fell out from that, that shook through the rest of the world, society. I, I remember my mom saying, oh, well, have you had any of these experiences at work? And I truly hadn't because I have worked mostly for women and with women and um, some men, but not not a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I can't I. The one thing I will say is that when I talk to men who do what I do or 
even like in other industries where you do have to have a certain amount of entrepreneurial um, like gusto and you mm -hmm. kind of have to, you have to really be pushing yourself and you have to be a self-starter. I observe that sometimes for men, it is a non, it's, it doesn't, they, they sort of non-issue. They're just like, well, now I'm here. Um, and for women, it's not as much of a given. I was listening to an interview with the, the head of the blacklist, Leonard, uh, I forgot what his name is. And he was talking about how they get a, tons of submissions. They get more men than women. And he finds that women, when he talks to them about submitting, he finds that men will submit things well before they are ready. ready. Mm -hmm. However, women will say, oh, I don't think it's ready. I think I need... I need to just like spend a few more, like, you know, I need to really yeah. tweak this scene. Sounds and, so familiar. And, and me too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, mm. I won't, I, I just won't like put some, I won't. And part of that is like, I came up at Vogue mm -hmm. where you really didn't put something forward unless Until it, it was, was really ready. ready. Mm -hmm. I have so, I've learned that the world is a little more forgiving. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's been, so I think I've tried to learn from men or I'm interested in I'm interested in potentially writing a TV pilot. And when I spoke to female TV writers, they were all really encouraging. The men I spoke to were absolutely like, "No, just do just do it. You don't need to take some low level job. You ju just should do it. You're a writer." Like they they, they it didn't even there was no you shadow of a doubt. Do the they were like, "Just yeah. do it." Yeah, just do it. Like, like there was just this self assuredness. Mm -hmm. So I've tried to. Um, I think I've thought a lot about that. I think what has happened, I feel very fortunate in that I've never been in work situations where I have been made to feel uncomfortable or I've experienced like blatant sexism in a workspace. However, I have tried to take like the self-assuredness that I observe a lot of men have. Yeah. I think if anything about the past, anything the past year has taught us is that like untalented men <laughs> can get very far with very few Super checks. Far. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not saying I don't want to be an untalented woman, woman, you know, getting far, but I think taking a little bit of that and saying, well, why not sure. me? Like, right. why not me? Like maybe I don't so need to tweak. So much of it is like just showing again. up and yeah. being confident. And being confident and like selling yourself. Completely. And so I think that is what I've really taken uh, from this time. I love that. Thank you. Really great way to end our combo. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. <laughs> <laughs>